hello to our audience and a warm welcome to this second science webinar in our 2022 Science in Life series on rare diseases. This webinar is entitled Combating the Fragmentation of Data and Disciplines, Innovation Hubs to Address Rare Diseases. My name is Sean Sanders and I'm the Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science. A few weeks ago, we kicked off our 2022 series on rare diseases, asking who the stakeholders are that need to be involved when we want to have the greatest impact on rare diseases. Today, we're drilling down to better understand one of these stakeholders, innovation hubs, also sometimes known as centers of excellence or expertise. Finally, thank you to Foundation Ibsen for sponsoring today's event and the series. Now I'd like to take the opportunity to welcome our esteemed panel today. Uh, I'm going to give each of them a chance to introduce themselves. And we're going to start with Dr. Marshall Summer, who was kind enough to be joining us again, and this time in studio. So welcome to you, Marshall. Sean, it's great to be back face to face. My name is Marshall Summer. I run the Rare Disease Institute at Children's National Hospital here in DC. I've uh, been in the field of medical genetics and rare disease since about the mid-80s, and it's been fascinating to watch all of the evolution that's been going on in the field. Wonderful. Thank you, Marshall. Uh, next, I'm very pleased to welcome Zizi Omatubebe. Zizi? Thank you, Sean. Uh, I'm Zizi Omatubebe. I'm Senior Vice President for Global Strategy and Development. I also head our Rare Disease Innovation Center uh, over at Egomet. Uh, which is a, a, a UK and a US-based uh, clinical research organization. I've been in the industry now for over 30 plus years, and I've been in the rare disease space for uh, quite a number of years, and I'm also a published author and speaker in the rare disease space. So I'm really glad to be a part of this. Great. Thank you, Zizi. And uh, next we have Dr. Anna Lehman joining us uh, from Vancouver. Welcome, Anna. Thank you. I'm an associate professor at the University of British Columbia in the Department of Medical Genetics. My research has been focused on improving genomic diagnosis for patients with rare diseases. I have a, a clinic in Vancouver General Hospital focused on the care for adults who have inborn errors of metabolism, and my lab is at the BC Children's Hospital. We're all part of the same academic healthcare network. Great. Thank you, Anna. Uh, and finally, I'd like to welcome Dr. Vinod Narayanan. Uh, thank you very much, Sean. Uh, I'm Vinod Narayanan. I'm a child neurologist. I uh, work here in Phoenix, Arizona and the USA. And I also direct the Center for Rare Childhood Disorders at uh, an institute called TGen. TGen is a private nonprofit research institute whose focus is on bringing the tools of genomics to uh, diseases, primarily cancer, but we launched the Center for Rare Disorders, uh, graduating from SNP arrays to whole genome sequencing in 2011. And uh, I'm glad to be part of this uh, panel. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you, Vinod. Um, so the first thing I wanted to, to bring to the panel, uh, I mentioned in my <laughs> intro that um, uh, centers of excellence and innovation hubs are, are similar. Um, I've used them interchangeably. I've thought of them interchangeably. But uh, speaking to, to Marshall this morning, I've, I, he has alerted me to the fact that, that they are not always the same. So, so Marshall, maybe no. you could explain some of the differences. Admittedly, there's a bit of semantics to it. But the way I would uh, use the definition, in rare disease, a center of excellence is based around clinical um, capacity. In other words, um, Anna's program in Vancouver has deep capacity to do a lot of things for patients. So you would expect you know, the ability to care for kids, adults, having all the secondary specialties, all the things you would need to care for a patient. An innovation center doesn't necessarily have the clinical chops, um, but actually is a place where they are focused on the research, developing new products, new strategies, new treatment protocols for patients. So while the two can overlap, mm -hmm. um, it, they can actually be quite separate entities. Mm -hmm. Right. So so Zizi, maybe I can ask you to talk a little bit about what, what you do at Ergomed and, and how you sort of fit in with those definitions. Sure, absolutely. So as I mentioned, Ergomed uh, is a clinical research organization uh, focused primar primarily on oncology and rare disease. And uh, I head the rare disease efforts and our rare disease innovation center. So we do actually have an innovation center. 
And uh, what we do from Industry with Innovation Center really is to work with a variety of industry partners to address the various challenges in rare disease. Obviously, as you know, in rare disease drug development, there, there are so many different challenges in trying to bring an asset through the life cycle because we're dealing with such you know, small patient populations, lack of endpoints, lack of natural history, etc. So our innovation center really exists to look at the challenges and the problems in rare disease and drug development and bring the best partners for it. So for example, we might be looking at, you know, um, you know, uh, maybe a study that involves children. And in this case, we might be looking at bringing in like a single control lab, you know, to minimize um, using children uh, as part of a randomized trial, for example. And so we will bring in the best partner that provides that kind of information. So, or that kind of service uh, into the equation. So that's how we use our Red Z Innovation Center is to leverage the best minds, the best services, the best partners to help us really address uh, the many problems in rare disease drug development. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, Rinald, maybe I could come to you next to, to talk about what TGen does and sort of, you know, would, would you be a partner to, to someone like Ergomed or do you have your own um, innovation structure at, at TGen? Uh, yeah, I think uh, TGen, we are in a kind of unusual, perhaps unique situation um, because TGen is not a major medical center. You know, we are not a, a big university like the University of Washington or the University of British Columbia or even uh, a big hospital like DC Children's. We are a private nonprofit research institute. But I think uh, uh, it was created actually by recruiting Jeff Trent, who was, I think, uh, uh, vice president or vice director of the National Human Genome Research Institute during the days of the Human Genome Project. But Jeff, being from Arizona, was enticed back to return to the state and create TGen with the primary mission of bringing genomics to people. You know, that we would, uh, we would be a collaborative center, and that's really what it has become. Um, <clears throat> since it's not a hospital, everything is done on a collaborative basis. But the center that we launched in 2013 is actually the first uh, clinic that uh, operated completely at TGen. And part of our mission initially has been in diagnosis. I, I would think of our center as an unaffiliated uh, copy of the uh, rare disease network or the undiagnosed disease network that was set up at, at uh, the NIH. But you know, we mainly have been serving the population around Arizona um, anybody who who has uh, who would like to enroll in our research study can just get, reach us by our web page. I have a, a couple of clinical research coordinators to do all the intake, and it just comes down to if if the suspicion is there that they have a genetic basis for their disorder, then they will get enrolled, and and we usually start off with whole genome and whole transcriptome sequencing to pinpoint what the problem is. But I think uh, as uh, this technology has become more widely available, uh, we, have, we have shifted our focus to the 60% or so of cases where whole genome sequencing does not give an answer, and also to treatment. So I do uh, direct a small research lab where we select a few conditions that we've been studying. So that means studying biology and studying new ways of approaching therapy. Uh, Red syndrome is an example of something like that that I've been studying for many years. But I think we, we have a biorepository type of thing where we collect skin fibroblasts on hundreds of our patients. And we are very open <clears throat> to sharing them with investigators around the world who are expert at a particular gene. And I think we have been helped greatly by the collaborative environment created by Gene Matcher, particularly. It allows us to connect with uh, scientists who are working on a particular gene and help us to help our families. I don't know if that would answer your question. Let sure. me stir up some discussion. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. And uh, Anna, let me give you a, a chance to jump in as well and, and give your two cents. I have a 
have to say what we are developing in Vancouver is very similar to what Vinod has developed. So I, I think what we're seeing is that that principle and evolution when when the same um, adaptations are happening uh, in, in different places, that it means that that's what, what we need. So what we found in our uh, hospital, we're having great access to next generation sequencing, exome sequencing for diagnosis now. Um, and it's quite equitable in Canada, I have to say, because of our public health care system. But the next problem we had were variants of uncertain significance, some of which looked quite compelling. The majority often, you know, you can tell that they're probably not relevant, but some of them really needed more evidence to, to kick them over to a diagnosis for the patient. So we uh, created um, what we call a discovery hub to um, connect our patients with the expert in that gene around the world uh, to, and have a platform or infrastructure uh, whereby we could uh, provide consent and material transfer agreements, um, resources for collecting samples, creating cell lines, shipping, tracking uh, in, a, in a very uh, coordinated um, and um, a safe kind of way. Uh, this was a huge um, improvement to our center because clinicians have great ideas, make these um, interesting findings for patients, but lack the time and capacity to create new protocols de novo every time and to you know ship things off of their desk. Our hospital has become over time much more careful about using dollars allocated for clinical care uh, for any kind of research. So that also has been a shift. Uh, there's just a lot more careful accounting and auditing. So we needed a, a formal uh, infrastructure to support that kind of um, patient-specific research. And it did not fit into the classical kind of research study where you have a large hypothesis that you're trying to develop. We just wanted to help individual patients. So we created um, a, a hub to, to achieve that. And the question is, how can this be funded? So we do have a research institute attached to our hospital that has a foundation that, that raises funds. And so this is a this is a pilot to see how much it is meeting the, the needs of our patients. So we do have funding uh, that was fundraised uh, that will last for a few years while we explore. So far, it's been fantastic. The biggest things that we've been able to offer um, our uh, uh, RNA-seq to look for the potential of splicing. And actually, that has a very high rate when you pre-select uh, variants that um, in silico predictors think that will alter splicing. That's been quite successful. And um, the other thing is simply growing these cell lines and then sending them to the expert around the world that has developed the functional assay to test that variant. And that's been that's been the second thing that's been the most helpful. And in some cases, we have not just variants of uncertain significance, but novel genes. Uh, and sometimes it's a scientist in, in, our, in our institute who is going to uh, do you know, animal models and much more extensive work. Um, and then gene matcher plays a major role to get the cohort that's needed. It's um, the recipe these days. So that's what that's what we're working on here. It is very similar to undiagnosed uh, disease programs in the states, um, but it's it serves uh, serves our patient population so that they don't have to travel to uh, to the NIH or, or somewhere else. It's working out well so far. Yeah, I might just point. jump in and uh, mm -hmm. say something if I may, Sean. So we are close to the border. You know, we are close to the southern border of the United States, and so we've we've actually also uh, recruited um, many families from Mexico. So the Sonoran state uh, is very close to us and they don't have the resources that are available to the, even here in Arizona. And so we have a large cohort of patients who've come from Mexico. Unfortunately, because of our ARB protocol, we're not allowed to do the consent over the phone. They have to be in the United States when we consent them. but. I think the, the great thing about what we've been able to do is that all of our efforts are supported by philanthropy. So we have never asked anyone, anyone who's any of the 700 or 800 pay families who've been enrolled for their insurance information or a credit card. Or So I think that we are fortunate in being able to do that. And I think certainly that applies for people who come from Mexico. It's not affordable for them. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Vinod. Well, no, I was also yeah. going to. Oh, 
Sorry. Sorry. Go ahead, Zizi. I was going to add something uh, when I thought about your initial question about the innovation hubs and also the Rare Disease Center of Excellence. I think one of the things that you're going to find is that the innovation hub and the Rare Disease Center of Excellence is going to depend greatly on the entity that's actually starting it, right? So in a, in a clinical setting, for example, or with a hospital, for example, it's going to look a little bit different um, than from when a patient advocacy group sets it up or from when um, an industry you know, uh, organization sets it up. Um, so that's, I think that's something to keep in mind because if you're really just from the clinical environment, for example, your center of excellence looks different. If you're from industry, your center of excellence or your innovation hub looks different. So um, that's why you're seeing the differences. Uh, if you look at even regulatory agencies like the FDA, for example, they came up with some you know, new, uh, they have this rare disease innovation um, hub that they set up with NORD, which is a patient advocacy group, and also CPAC. That's another innovation center. So I think that's something for your viewers to keep in mind that the differences will really depend on the entity that's setting them up as well. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. Thank you for that, Zizi. So, Marshall. Yes. Yeah. Uh, let me. Um, what's really great is to see all the innovation going on out there. And one of the things we've seen, uh, kind of, when they sort of, sort of finished up, and actually only about two months ago, did they declare that they actually think they'd finished sequencing the human genome. Mm-hmm. We got a draft back in 2000, but it's a discovery period. So while we're using a lot of this information clinically, I think my colleagues here might actually say. A lot of times the most common answer we give a patient is maybe. We think this change we found probably causes this, but now we're doing the background work and you know, sharing these cell lines, sharing this information. One of the things that has really been encouraging about this field is people are sharing their data. When they find a new change and they have a clinical presentation with it, that data is then put out there for other folks to look at and saying, ah, we've seen the same thing. So I would say we're at the edges of the puzzle uh, right now, we've got a ton of thesis to fill in in the middle moving forward, but these are the types of efforts moving forward that are going to get that done. Mm-hmm. So, I, um, and I'd like to come to you to just to, to sort of set the scene a little bit. I think we, we sort of dived in headfirst into all of this, but what, what the, qu- the question that I have is what are the, the, the really the biggest challenges in the rare disease field that are being solved by innovation hubs? So, you know, I'm sure all of you, the, the, the full panel has some comments on this, but, you know, what are your thoughts? What do you see as the, the really critical issues that um, innovation hubs can address? Well, we, we do have to figure out a way to share our data more. Uh, in Canada, we have provincial healthcare systems. We're a, a collection of separate healthcare systems, and there's a project uh, being led by an organization called Genome Canada, uh, called All for One, which is trying to get data sharing happening across these provincial boundaries, um, primarily through the genomics laboratories that are the stewards of a lot of the genomic data. Uh, So initially that will help tremendously with just the diagnostic process and being able to sort out variants. Um, We hope also that there could be a kind of broad registry across across the country, whereby it's easier than to have any researcher who's interested in a disease find um, all the patients in the country at once uh, who have that condition. That's a lofty goal, but that's our that's the next step. And that work is starting to happen um, largely with privacy and legal specialists around uh, data um, sharing, privacy, access and so forth. So that's the next direction that we're headed, uh, is how do we link our individual centers of excellence together more robustly. Mm -hmm. Right, Marshall? Now, Anna, um, I know I've talked to some of the folks working on the Canadian project up there. I think it's got tremendous promise. One of the things we run across with next generation sequencing and with a lot of the interpretation is actually having a good phenotype. I know there's been some things around human phenotype ontology, things like that. Where do you see that going? Because it's sort of, the sequence is a giant lever, but you've got to have a fulcrum for it. So how are you all working on that? That's a very good question. Um, 
we're trying to integrate tools, you know, software, I don't mean to um, uh, advertise, but like something, you know, phenotypes or different programs that try to make it easy for the clinicians to input phenotypic information. There's not a problem, uh, I think, um, characterizing phenotype. We have excellent clinicians in these centers of excellence. Uh, it's how can, in a time efficient way, extract uh, the records into a portable uh, format. And so we're hoping that there are software solutions to, to make that happen so that we're not just having high level HPO terms that uh, are, are not uh, helpful for the more granular analyses. So that's another challenge. And when talking about phenotype, I mean, I, I keep stressing to my colleague, I'm a clinician uh, and, you know, a, a self, self-taught uh, geneticist and self-taught bioinformatist. But um, I think phenotype is absolutely critical. Without that information, it's very, very difficult to make sense out of this, you know, massive amount of data. I, I just reminded me of a, of a call that I was on several months ago with um, FDNA. And then of course they are geared towards capturing a single picture of the patient, you know, a frontal and, you know, a view and help them in, in generating a, a, a differential diagnosis, uh, along with uh, terms that you enter into that, uh, into their patient database. But I think I did mention to them, it would be great to have a video input because at least for as a neurologist we depend so much on a video clip that shows what a patient's behavior is like uh, what a patient's movement is like what their speech is like but again i think that we might eventually come to that a video image that is uploaded into some program that extracts all of the phenotypic data that just can automatically get into the next gen sequencing uh, you know, analytical tool. So I'm hoping that will come true. Mm -hmm. Aisha, you, you had also asked, you know, what do you think the innovation, what kind of problems the innovation hubs can solve in the rare disease space? You know, one of the challenges with rare disease is that the natural history is very, very limited. We have very little information sometimes to, to go on because these diseases are so rare. And one of the things that we are starting to see is just this, you know, collaboration between various groups to be able to share data. You know, I mentioned earlier the FDA, they have a, a program where they call the Cures Accelerator Program, which they have actually done with various groups like CPAP and Nord. And what they have done is they have agreed to share data, uh, patient information data. So in that way, it makes it actually easier to get better information about the patient's journey for that particular uh, indication. So this was something that we did, I think about a year ago, and it's um, actually pretty helpful because again, natural history is something that is a challenge um, in the rare disease um, space. Uh, from a clinical development point of view, one of the challenges that we do face is being able to identify these patients. You know, where are these patients? Where are they? located, how can we find them? And also being able to identify the sites or even physicians that treat this kind of patients that have the experience. So from us with our innovation center, those are kinds of all the things that we solve for, is how do we leverage data? And we leverage like artificial intelligence, AI data, we leverage data from all kinds of proprietary sources to be able to really pinpoint where these patients are. We also leverage genetic data with all the sequencing that has been going on and also be able to identify who the treating physicians are because we feel like if we can quickly bring these patients and the physicians together um, then it makes it um, a pathway to really in increase uh, bringing that drug to the market and that's one of the things from the industry point of view that we also solve for is being making sure that we can find these patients leveraging various types of means from intelligence um, to genetic uh, type of data. And also we can find the, these physicians that have the experience uh, and then marry them together so that the patients can get into these clinical trials and hopefully mm -hmm. bring these um, rare disease drugs to market quicker. Mm -hmm. 
Right. Thank you, Zizi. Sean, I had yeah. the, Sean, Zizi, I'm so glad you brought this up. Um, I had the privilege of being Nord's board chair for a while when we started the I Am Rare program, which was a natural history program. It's been a great success. I think there's over 50 natural history registries going on now. And what we found, and I think what we found as clinicians is there are so many diseases, so many conditions that trying to run out of a um, academic or even a nonprofit environment from the physician side, a natural history study, it gets really heavy after a while to do that. And the patient data is actually quite good. So the registry program at Nord, for instance, is part of the um, accelerators program. That is patient collected data. They can pull pay data in from physicians, but it's a kind of new way to look at how do we build these natural history studies. Because trying to do cross-sectional analysis in rare disease, there's not enough patients. The only way to get enough data is to actually collect over time. And we found that the parents and the patients themselves are highly motivated to participate. And I'm seeing a number of um, pharmaceutical developments now using the data from those. In fact, the, the dream is the controlless study, where the natural history study from a rare disease serves as your control because particularly with our more serious rare diseases, getting a family to enroll in a control arm is a very difficult and ethically challenging task. So I'm, I'm very excited about the things going on. Thanks for bringing that up, Zizi. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I mean, you know, we live it every day because like for me uh, and in my role and, you know, here at Evermed, we're working with sponsors that are trying to bring these drugs to market. So we're seeing these challenges every day and that's a huge challenge with the natural uh, history, obviously, uh, as you mentioned, and uh, you know, we talked a little bit. We touched about the ethical nature of this. That's another problem also to overcome. You know, half of rare diseases that you know most are affected, you know, children are affected, are involved in half of the rare diseases. Obviously, we know that, and a third of um, children with uh, rare diseases will die before their fifth birthday. So we're dealing with a lot of children, and we're dealing with a lot of families. So it's a family issue. And I think in places like the U.S., for example, it's kind of seen a little bit as being unethical to use children um, in control arms, right? So I think, you know, like uh, he had just mentioned, having that natural history, using real-world evidence, looking at ways we can use real-world evidence and simple control arms in this particular instance is another powerful way that innovation hubs, such as um, the one that we have at, uh, uh, with Nord and the FDA and some of the partners that we're working with can really help to solve. Uh, Vinod, I know you wanted to jump in. Yeah, no, I just, uh, you know, kind of um, bringing us back to the topic that you talked about, you know, the challenges. Um, just as an example, uh, I've seen several families, you know, when they've uh, been, when their child has been diagnosed with a rare disease, you know, the first thing that we help guide them, connect them with other families through their Facebook pages. Uh, often there is no there is no family support group existing at all. But when a small critical mass forms, they all seem to go through the same steps. You know, the family gets to families get together, they launch a foundation, and then they uh, uh, recruit a few scientists or clinicians, and they have a scientific advisory board. But their goal, their sole aim, is, I mean, there are two things. One is understanding of the disease. And the second thing is developing treatments for the disease. But I've seen this have, you know, kind of duplicated over and over again. You know, with, uh, so there are, uh, I, I, you know, whether it's a CHD2 foundation or the Syngap foundation, this, so the same thing happens over and over again. They are focused on their disease. But it would be nice if we had, I, I think maybe RareX is, is a solution to this type of problem. It'd be nice to have a solution where this duplication of effort is eliminated. There'll be one global organization that facilitates uh, developing uh, you know, patient registries. Uh, in, maybe that, that's what existed, Nord. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm ignorant about those things. But allow for patients to be consented universally uh, allow for, and still have subgroups within this global network, and and that could be the place where uh, pharmaceutical companies and researchers who are can apply to use 
whether cellular materials, patient materials, and also look for patients to recruit into small-scale clinical trials. To have this global clearinghouse would be wonderful so we don't do the same thing over and over again for hundreds of diseases. Renaud, that's one of NORD's missions, actually. And so NORD, for those of you who don't know, is the National Organization for Rare Disorders. Um, there's also a CORD, the Canadian Organization for Rare Disorders, um, very good organization. I'm actually meeting with them later today. And that is kind of the goal. NORD's an umbrella organization with 300 uh, member groups, but you're exactly right. If you actually do the math, since 2000, the rate of new disease description, or at least new linking of a, a genetic change to a phenotype, is about 10 to 12 per week. So it's different from any other field of medicine in that regard. The rate of discovery is you know, while we were having this conversation, there was a new disease uh, found somewhere. So trying to figure out how do you do the research on those, how do you move those forward, you have to share um, base precepts, you have to share concepts, you have to share techniques so you don't reinvent the wheel every single time. And uh, ironically, we, we had uh, Charlene Sun Rigby from RareX on last webinar that we did just a few <laughs> weeks ago. So I should have invited her back to this one. Um, but um, Anna, I wanted, I wanted to give you a chance to jump in if you have any thoughts. Oh, absolutely. I, I just wanted to build on what Zizi was talking about with the need for the real world evidence. Um, we, um, we can leverage our centers of excellence uh, by having a better ability to track how new treatments are uh, impacting um, patients and impacting our healthcare system. So we do have, I know this is not the topic of today's webinar, but we have a, a major issue uh, in how to make our healthcare system uh, sustainable with what's happening is right now is an explosion of, of fantastic new treatments uh, coming out for rare diseases that are tremendously expensive. And we, um, you know, we find that these are, are being shown to be safe and efficacious and therefore getting uh, marketing approvals uh, through FDA, Health Canada. Um, and then our um, public insurance program has to make a decision about uh, coverage and, and coverage for, for whom. And the data that was sufficient to show safety and efficacy is not always sufficient to show um, uh, cost effectiveness uh, to the degree that that's really needed and also just how you know again how total healthcare system um, utilization is being impacted by that so again i think the centers of excellence um, by more robustly uh, collecting information that then is you know being uh, able to be pooled from all the centers of excellence is going to help us with those really tough economic uh, issues as well that um, that are facing rare diseases and will increasingly so in the next five years, I believe. Anna, I've got to agree with you, but I think innovation is one of the places we can address this. Um, if you look at the cost of approval for a new rare disease drug, it's up to half of what a regular mainstream drug would cost but then you've got a very small denominator underneath that. I think there are ways we can do this better. I think there are models we can look at, you know, with the new gene therapies coming out where it may be millions of dollars for one therapy right now under our current model. We've got to look at ways, how do we leverage, um, you know, uh, efficacy, durability, things like that into the pricing. So I, I do think innovation is actually going to play a role in the economics of this as well too. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah. This is, and I thank you for bringing that up. And I, it's it's not something that we we talk much about, but the the, the healthcare issue and and uh, health insurance is is huge, and it's it's yeah. sort of the the elephant in the room. But um, I I I won't comment on the differences between the U.S. and Canada because <laughs> I, think, I think we know there are some issues and things that we could definitely do better in the U.S. Um, but I, I wanted to to ask. Um, a few times we've mentioned advocacy groups, so I'm yeah. interested in their role in the centers of excellence and these innovation hubs. Are they drivers or are they sort of more, more marginalized in the social? I think they're drivers. Um, if, you're not, if you're working in a rare disease and you're not working with a patient advocacy group, you're missing the richness of data, but also the people that will encourage you to keep going, the people that will bring patients together for either studies or treatment protocols, um, things like that. So 
For me, a lot of research in rare disease centers around a patient advocacy group. And I think, um, I think Zizi may have said they often will drive it. The, the families will come in, it's like, we want work done on this. And I think it's up to us in the field to make sure that we don't waste the resources, that we actually find um, productive ways to engage with them, but absolutely at the center of it. Mm -hmm. And we want more of that? Yeah, the we same want more of that, that, yes. Point. And I think uh, what I'm seeing now is it's still, I think Vernod said, you know, you see individuals showing up saying, let's fix this disease, let's fix that disease. We do need to systematize the approaches more, both from the patient side as well as the uh, physician side, but they really are our partners in this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, I, I have to agree. I think the patient advocacy groups are very powerful. Again, you know, if we go back to something I said earlier on, you, if you look at the center of excellence or the innovation hub, it's really gonna depend on the entity driving it. We've talked a lot about the, uh, the, the FDA accelerator program, well, that's done in conjunction with the patient advocacy group NORD, right? So they are, they are really big drivers in this. And I think like Vinod um, kind of alluded to a little bit, you know, when a patient usually gets diagnosed with a rare disease, they often feel alone. They feel a bit abandoned. They know that it's rare. So the one of the very first things that they do is look for that patient advocacy group, right? Uh, so that patient advocacy group now, if there is one, becomes a conduit for them to maybe learn more about what kind of treatments are available and what other patients uh, or patient groups um, they are in that particular area. So they have a powerful voice. Um, I think about here in the US, for example, as many of you will remember with the Egyptian drug, for example, you know, the drug was not approved initially. But the patient advocacy had a very, very powerful voice. And they were able to show that you know, with the drug that um, that was in question at the time, that there was some benefit um, to their to their patients, to their families in terms of quality of life. So they were really powerful in really helping the FDA reverse a decision that would have, um, in other words, uh, essentially denied that drug. We also find patient advocacy groups uh, for us in our use, for example, in, in our innovation center, is being able to provide uh, insights and input, for example, into yeah. protocols, you know? Um, how is this protocol being developed for their patients or patients in that particular indication? Um, is this protocol patient-friendly? Is it going to address and look at the endpoints that are actually important to the patient? I think you also mentioned Sean about insurance and things like that. There are many questions that need to be addressed. You want a, a protocol that's patient friendly, correct, but you also want a protocol eventually that's going to be payer friendly so that at the end of yeah. the day, you can get the approval you need um, for the, for the uh, product that's, um, that's in question. So the advocacy groups are very important in very early on in the beginning staging stages in driving consideration for the protocols in identifying the patients um, for studies for example and also in working uh, within with various groups to share data patient registries etc but they're also very powerful towards the end of the journey where you're trying to get the drug out you know if they're familiar with the drug and familiar with the benefits then they become very strong advocates uh, for that drug and eventually uh, its approval and sometimes uh, um, uptake by peers. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, thank you for that, Susie. Any other thoughts, Marshall? Well, I think, as you said, patient advocacy groups, payers, it's a, it really is an invite. It's a whole community that has to get involved with these. It's interesting to watch how the FDA responds. Um, they've actually done, a, they've actually become very flexible around rare disease. I think as they have met with patient and family groups, they realize sometimes the urgency. Um, so I think when we're looking at innovation and their engagement with the approval agencies actually has been quite productive um, in a number of studies that I've seen. I, I'm kind of curious to ask my fellow panelists, since we're talking about incorporating things like whole genome sequence, a lot of next-gen data, phenotype, how do you see the role of machine learning advancing in here? I, there's a lot of buzz around it. Um, it's one of those things I think that is very kind of popular right now, but how do you see it um, playing out in the field of rare disease? If you don't mind my asking sure, a question. Sure, no, ab absolutely. Um, 
Anybody, anybody like to take that? Otherwise, I'm going to pick someone. <laughs> well, you know, I, oh, I was just going to comment that, uh, you know, in our small center, we use, um, we were using all of our own uh, in-house developed software in the early days. You know, the mm-hmm. pipeline that we used at TGen was something that was written, the code was written by our own uh, uh, scientists. We were using the first uh, grade uh, first generation Illumina machines back in 2011. Mm-hmm. But I think since then, we have found that commercially available software packages are just so up to date. They bring in all the data from all the, you know, the latest update of all the databases where you might want to query are all incorporated into these newer um, software packages. And one of them uh, again, I'm not an expert in AI or machine learning, but uh, they claim to include AI kind of tools, probably mainly to predict, um, you know, like splicing, uh, splice uh, variants, variants that might you might predict for to alter splicing of genes and things like that. It, and the only other example where I think I understand that AI type of tools are very in great use is facial recognition, you know, the FDNA mm-hmm. software. Um, but other than that, uh, we are still going through manually after some, you know, the software, we can set the rules, but then after that, we analyze uh, mm-hmm. the data, the annotated files manually. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good point that we have seen um, AI especially with facial phenotypical recognition um, in this space. Another way that we've seen AI um, used as well is also to help speed up the diagnosis. You know, one of the challenges um, in rare diseases is just how long it takes to accurately diagnose uh, a rare disease. So using machine learning, for example, we're seeing more and more uses of that to help speed diagnosis, especially as you know, a variety of, um, of or majority of uh, rare diseases are, are genetic in origin. So um, speeding up diagnosis um, is, is also a very important way to use AI, uh, especially in genetic diseases. And I, I would just echo that and I frame it in, in terms of economics, uh, just to say that uh, if, if I'm, you know, our as we incorporate more AI into that genomic testing process, the, the cost will come down if you have to invest less human resources. And what I would like to see uh, is that uh, I, I, it's sort of an expensive test, but then it's not an expensive test, depending on what your angle, uh, your uh, perspective is. But um, it, the, the price needs to maybe come down a bit for what I would like to happen, which is uh, much, much more broad um use of uh, exome or, or whole genome diagnostic testing uh especially maybe in my field with with adult onset genetic disease uh, i see a lot of diagnoses still that take many many years um because they, they're just left to progress to quite a severe degree before someone finally says okay this 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 looks like it could be a, a, a neurodegenerative condition but if it was a, a, not too expensive of a test then it could there could be a broader rollout and you could also if you decrease the number of variants of uncertain significance that also de- decreases the downstream cost and, and part of the barrier of not wanting to order the test uh, so as we get more precise and maybe a little bit cheaper, then we can help more people. There's another factor, and Anna, I don't know if you had the same experience as we do. We have a real labor shortage in the field in the states. Um, wait yeah. times on average uh, for a clinical genetics program or a rare disease program can be a year or more uh, for patients, Absolutely. which in that cycle of trying to get to diagnosis can certainly push that way down the road there. One thing we're hoping is that with some of the new informatics tools, machine learning, AI, um, that we can actually start to engage more of the mainstream physician core um, so that they can actually start the process. We may have to still be the ones at the end of the day to help, you know, kind of close it all out, but start to move things further and further towards the primary care provider. And I think Mm -hmm. I'm starting to see that happen some. What we'd like to do is see it happen in a way that makes sense for the patients. I think that's a huge area for innovation. Yeah, and that that's, 
you've segued so nicely into my next question, which I've been wanting to ask, which is how do the primary care doctors interact with these these sort of these these centers of excellence and innovation hubs? Um, and I'm thinking particularly of those working in remote areas. Right. I mean, you know, Canada has a huge swath um, where you have maybe one doctor for hundreds of, of people in a small village. Um, so um, how are they brought in um, when they're they're on the front lines? Yeah. How can they how can they feed into these these hubs? Well, we got to run sort of a big experiment, and I'll, I'll be curious to get the others' uh, input on this. We'd always been playing with telemedicine and um, rare disease and medical genetics, but we weren't playing with it as seriously as we could. And I think when suddenly we were forced to in uh, early 2020, we learned that you can actually do a pretty good job. Mm -hmm. There's sometimes you, there's no substitute for seeing a patient face-to-face, mm -hmm. -face, but there are a lot of things we can do remotely. But also, we can now get to patients that we couldn't before, either because of the distance from where we were or where the diagnostic center was, um, you know, a patient who is more fragile than should be traveling frequently. And of course, uh, I work in a children's hospital. If you have a medically fragile patient, not always the best place to be from an infectious disease standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, but we're working around a hub-and-spoke model. So have a collection of you know, high-end specialists together, but then reach out to the community. Um, when, you know, and the nice thing is electrons are fast. So mm -hmm. the geography doesn't come as much to, as a role to play there. The other thing we found is some families have challenges coming in. They can't take a half day off from work, uh, particularly some of our uh, single working families. If we can see them in the home or we can see them at school, uh, we can actually do a lot better. And, we noticed for some of our sickest patients a drop in admissions because we could see them faster and decrease that decision loop cycle around taking care of them. I'd be curious to see if Anna or Vernad has seen the same thing. Absolutely. And um, because of the pandemic, our hospital launched a great telehealth platform and <clears throat> for patients who live remotely, uh, we can now see them, you know, often we're, depending on what the patient's situation is, we might alternate, okay, well, we'll do a telehealth and then we'll have yeah. you fly down to Vancouver, or uh, maybe we can do all of your appointments with us through telehealth and we can partner with a local physician to, to do a, a targeted physical exam that we, you know, we send them as a sort of a, a fill in the blank sheet and that's worked out well for other patients. So it's been a, that's been the one silver lining out of the pandemic is that's uh, transformed um, families' lives. Uh, it's so expensive to have to travel and to take time off work. So I'm, I'm really happy about that. Um, and then but back to the first point, like I, I, I'm really looking forward to more neurologists, cardiologists, pediatricians uh, being able to uh, order uh, this genomic diagnostic sequencing to get faster diagnoses for patients as well. Um, and that can happen more locally as well. Yeah, there's actually a lot of innovation going on around what I call home evaluation kits like um, echo that'll hook into your phone, echocardiogram that'll hook into your phone, oh, wow. EKG wearable devices. And I think that's gonna be a real innovation field over the next few years. It, I don't think it will completely ever replace having the patient come in to be seen, but for many of our patients, that's much better than nothing at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I was going to tell you a little bit about the experiences here in Arizona. Um, one of the examples is that uh, we have a Native American reservation up north of Phoenix, where, uh, again, access to healthcare is not always the best. And, and so I think telemedicine has been a wonderful tool, but I think the first time you're seeing somebody, it does help to uh, see the whole family, see the dynamics of the family, watch the child carefully, because it's you know, imagine a, a three-year-old in a room and, you know, he may not be on camera. He may be running around all over the place. So I think follow-up visits are very well accomplished on um, by telemedicine. But I think a telemedicine pre-evaluation to come to get actual careful history from the parent is absolutely the best. And then I know here in Arizona, we've always been doing outreach clinics. You know, me and my colleagues have uh, go once a month to Flagstaff or on the reservation at Chinle or you know Window Rock places that uh, where they have 
uh, specialty clinics, you know, periodically to go. But I'm thinking that the way to way to uh, improve access to this technology for diagnosis would be have these kind of mobile units, mobile providers, maybe not necessarily, you know, specialists or generalists. I've been thinking somebody with an interest in rare disease, get on a bus or a van and drive out on a particular schedule and then collect the information, maybe some of the information already collected by telemedicine, but uh, educate them because it's very important to educate them so that they don't think, oh, well, you know, they're being taken advantage of. And then bring those samples back into the, the center of excellence for processing and sequencing. One thing we found, and I'd be curious to see if it's been your experience with our patients with autism, we've actually found the telemedicine visits in some way can be better because bringing in a patient with autism to a new environment that may have sights, smells, and everything that are foreign to them actually can be very disruptive. And we, I recently had an experience with two twin brothers and the mom uh, said, yes, if I brought them into your hospital, they would have destroyed the room and probably hit you several times. And I'm talking to two young boys who are just sitting there just as calm as can be and, and actually got a much better visit with them. So I think, like you said, you've got to use it appropriately. It's not an answer for everything, but I do think it's a great force multiplier. Yeah, I was um, just going to add, I'm sure, you know, with the uh, the pandemic everyone has been hearing more about decentralized trials dcts yeah. decentralized clinical trials and the decentralized trial essentially is just really trying to bring the patient closer to the to the study or to the or to the site as opposed to having the patients come into the site so in terms of incorporating technology you see a lot of um, various technological uh, aspects in dct uh, we've talked about telemedicine, which is one way um, of doing it. We have, however, found, I think like Vinod was alluding to a little bit, is that many times the patients also still want to have that face-to-face. -face. So we find that most of these trials can be, cannot, are not usually totally virtual. There's some sort of hybrid nature to it, where they're in person sometimes, and then um, other times they are coming from their home. We also find that with the innovation and decentralized um, trials, it also helps with clinical trial diversity. Obviously, as uh, you are aware, I have been hearing quite a bit of, there is a lack of diversity in our clinical trials because a lot of uh, patients that are from underrepresented communities, for example, are not able to access these clinical trials. So I think having the innovative technologies, for example, does help with um, increasing diversity in in patient trials because these patients are now able to more readily uh, access the trials. You talked about wearables. That's something that we've been seeing quite a bit in industry, which is where we have a number of wearables to, to me measure, you know, various types of outcomes, you know, heart, heart rates, etc. Uh, and then this is also hooked up to the, to the study. And also we also have the ability to be able to send physicians, not physicians, but uh, clinic, nurses, or home health groups straight to the homes so they can also supplement the work of the physician as well. So I think the pandemic has been helpful in spurring on a lot of this um, innovation and a lot of these technologies and decentralized trials. And that's helped rare diseases, but it's also helped increase um, diversity uh, or increase the number of diverse patients in trials. Mm -hmm. So we're coming to the end of our hour, um, but I wanted to um, ask one final question. So we, we've talked about a lot of the, the positive sides of, of these innovation hubs. They seem to be doing um, really great things. There's a lot of advantages to them. Um, <clears throat> my question is, how can they be improved? What are, is there anything that we're missing? Um, and particularly, um, are there any unexpected benefits that might come out of the development of these innovation hubs that, that haven't been considered yet. So um, I think uh, maybe we'll, we'll just, I'll, I'll open this up, but um, uh, Zizi, maybe I'll start with you. Yeah, so I think, you know, one of the things that we can look forward to is really, I think like um, the panel has, 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 has said here is, how do we collaborate better? How do we share information? You know, Anna is doing great work, Vinod is doing great work, um, as well as Marshall doing great work. Um, how do all these groups, how do we talk to each other, right? We're doing great work as well. 
but how do we talk to each other so we can share the information? The idea of uh, innovation or a center of excellence really is really more collaborative. It's really how we bring the best minds together. So I think one of the big takeaways is understanding the, the various uh, differences in the different innovation centers, what they offer, and how we can collaborate and share data better, really, to be able to help our rare disease patients. Mm -hmm. uh, Anna, why don't we have you next? I think we need leadership at a high level uh, to um, create the pathways for us to be able to share. Uh, it's it's a, a lot of responsibility uh, to be a, a data steward um, and the REBs um, sometimes struggle with uh, figuring out you know what's safe and, and appropriate and how does one consent and and um, and reconsent and and so forth over a very long-term horizon and I think if we have um, you know our, our governments and our and our organizational bodies uh, taking a leadership role to create the the mechanisms for this to happen then because this is what needs to happen we, we do need to link together and be more organized um, and collaborate more so that's what I hope uh, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, one thought that occurred to me, you know, as a private nonprofit institution where I work, when I look through the list of centers for excellence in Nord, I think I, there's uh, something like 33 centers. All of them are major universities, you know, they're not um, uh, private nonprofit groups like us. So I would like to see a way in which it would be easier to include other other organizations that are working on the rare disease in the rare disease arena to become a partner in this thing. I have tried uh, before, I have been on phone calls with the Rare Disease Clinical Research Network, mainly to see how we can learn from all the other centers to uh, implement small scale clinical trials with the handful of patients that we have at our center. You know, we for any disease, we might have one patient in our center or five or at most 10. So, but th there's been a lot of administrative obstacles that I've seen it says, oh, you have to do this. You have to apply this, wait till next year, the application opens up again. So I would like to see the uh, opportunities for smaller places that are still working in the same arena, um, get easier to partner with all the major centers. And so contribute in some way and also learn from them. Fantastic. And uh, Marshall? So I think connectivity, I think the th theme that we've all been discussing is we need to share information and we need to share what we're doing. I think if you look at the example of um, sickle cell anemia and cystic fibrosis, when people started sharing treatment protocols, there's an unexpected benefit. People start looking at what other folks are doing and start adapting better practices. And I think many of the advances made in those fields are not so much from new drugs, new therapies, but are actually from using best practices and sharing those across. Um, I think the Centers of Excellence program that we launched at Nord last year was a patient resource so patients could find places that had a, a lot of depth and a lot of specialties. I think the next phase is connecting these special, um, and Renaud, you have a really wonderful specialty organization there that we need to get you connected to one of those to the Centers of Excellence Network and also think about becoming a NORD member too. Um, but I think that's the key is getting a connection. One thing I've noticed in industry too, and ZZ you can, you I think might bear this out, once upon a time when industry did a clinical trial, they held that data tightly. No one ever saw it, um, whether it was a positive study or a negative study. And what I've seen now is industry is sharing that data. And so instead of us having to go back and try to recollect it again. And with these small patient groups, you often can't. That data is now becoming easier to share and is more cross-purpose. I'm very optimistic about where things are going. I think we'll see a lot of benefits just from the process of talking to each other. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. So we are unfortunately out of time for today, but I wanted to thank all of our speakers for the, the really fantastic, informative and stimulating conversation. Uh, and of course, for taking the time out of your busy schedules to help me and our audience uh, understand this topic a little bit better. Uh, this particular webinar is the second in a series of six running this year. So please look out for more coming your way soon. 
Uh, if you'd like to send us your thoughts on today's webinar, please email webinar at aaas.org. Uh, thank you once again to our fantastic panel and to Foundation Ibsen for enabling this conversation and the series through their kind sponsorship. Goodbye, everyone.